0: Please open the word of God with me to 1st Peter. Back in the first epistle of Peter near the end of your New Testament there in the back of your Bible. And we've been seeing how this letter has moved from discussing our identity in Jesus Christ to emphasizing the importance of our testimony. That because of who we are in Christ, we have a responsibility to the watching world around us. And to this point, Peter has well explained that we have this responsibility to live out our Christianity in whatever context we are. And in our last study of this letter, that was a couple weeks ago now, Peter talked about living the good life. It's not what the world typically imagines as the good life, but we saw how God's pathway to blessing is a life not free of affliction, not free of persecution, but it is a life of unbroken fellowship with our Father. And that's ultimately... the good life, taking God's pathway to blessing, Peter now instructs us concerning how we are to respond with all the oppositions we meet along the way. Because we invariably will. If we want to live for God, if we want to follow His law, we will be opposed in this life. And so let's begin by reading our text from 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, We'll stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 through 17. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and with reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should so will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. That's the reading of God's inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's ask our Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Our Father, we come to you thanking you that your word is sufficient. It is sufficient to instruct us in what is right and what is wrong and how to get right and how to stay right. Your word is enough to make us complete, you said. But, Lord, uh, we know the problem is us and our failure to respond, our failure to hear your word. Father, I need, first of all, your power and I need your enablement, your grace, O Lord, to speak your words as they ought to be spoken. We ask that your spirit would be upon your servant as he brings your word. And we ask that your spirit would fall upon all those listening, that we would have ears to hear, that we would have hearts, humble, soft, tender To respond that whatever you tell us, we will do. Whatever changes you desire to make in our life, we will do for the sake and glory of your name. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Last year, the Family Research Council released an extensive report documenting a sharp rise in acts of hostility against churches in the United States. Now listen, this is very... Troubling, The report states, analyzing publicly available data from the past five years, the Family Research Council found a total of 420 documented acts of hostility that occurred between January 2018 and September 2022. The types of acts included vandalism, arson, gun-related incidents, bomb threats, and more. There also appeared to be an increase in frequency over the course of the reporting period. The report identified 137 acts of hostility against churches between January and September 2022 alone. The report also states the first three months of 2023 saw approximately three times the number of acts of hostility perpetrated against churches in the same time frame as the year before. Now we should be thankful that the freedoms... Uh, that we have in our country are, are still intact somewhat. We still enjoy many blessed freedoms in this nation. But, brothers and sisters, things are heating up. In fact, hostility towards Christians is on the rise, not only in our own country, but really even within our own community, we might say. In May of last year, Schreiber High School celebrated Equality Day by educating students educating the student body on the issues of the LGBTQ community and what they're facing. And the education was careful to identify Christians as the prominent enemy of exclusivity, all the way since ancient times till today. Now, maybe it's just a coincidence, but a few months later, the high school canceled the student-led Christian club. Why? For not being inclusive enough. I guess that's one way to make a school more inclusive, is to exclude people who don't agree with your ideas. Are we allowed to call this Christophobia or Christianophobia? You've heard of these phobias where people have negative attitudes, feelings, or actions against a certain people group or idea. If there's such a thing as homophobia or Islamophobia, I'm pretty sure if we check the cultural climate, if we... We'll see what the again the family research council is showing us there is a rise of christianophobia in our culture and just remember coming back to our text coming back to this letter of first peter just remember what this whole letter is really about i mentioned this a while back as we were getting into our study but the big idea that peter's after in this letter is really stated at the conclusion in chapter 5 verse 12 Where Peter summarizes his entire word to Christians this way, he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this, that is the things I have written to you, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Against all opposition, against all persecution, stand firm. We must stand firm in the true grace of God. Now, how can we do this when our culture is so hostile to what we believe? It's obvious we're living in a what we might call a post-Christian culture, and the days ahead may be more difficult, far more difficult, than we can actually guess. So our text timely challenges us, in in a timely way challenges us, regarding our response to a hostile culture. In verses 13 through 17, it seems Peter anticipates the following question. How should we as Christians respond to a hostile culture? And our text gives us four responses that we must take to such a culture. First, continue doing what is right. Continue doing what is right. Verse 13, Peter says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now a culture hostile to Christianity aims to stop Christians in their tracks. It it intends to intimidate you, to quench your zeal, to Prevent you or, or render you ineffective. And your testimony ineffectual for Christ. So as to stop the spread of the gospel. But Peter calls us, in the face of such resistance, to continue, to carry on doing what's right. He even says, prove zealous for what is good. This word zealous comes from the same Greek word used to describe the zealots. You know who the zealots were? The zealots were these Jews... Back in the first century, who devoted themselves to rid the land of uh, their land, Israel, from the Roman occupiers. And they were restless fighters, the zealots were. They were extremely aggressive because of their eager zeal to purge their land. Well, Peter's not calling us to be zealots in this sense of the term. He actually just told us in our previous study that we are to bless our enemies. That's very unzealot like. But Peter is telling us to be zealous for what is good. That's his calling here. And to be consistent with the rest of his Christian view of life, this pursuit of good is not simply pursuing whatever we deem good or whatever makes us feel happy. The idea of pursuing good here is consistent with what he's mentioned in verse 11, turning away from evil and doing good according to God's law. God defines good. And we are to zealously pursue the things that are pleasing to God. Now Peter drops two reasons that continuing good is a good idea. First, pursuing what is right will save you some pain. He asks in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And the answer is what? Generally, no one. Generally, if you leave other people alone, if you will just not be a jerk and behave yourself, people will leave you alone. I mean, that that is thankfully the way many people uh, tend to behave, and that simply reflects the fact that they are made in the image of God, they do have God's law written on their heart. We've seen this principle already in chapter 2, verse 20, that Peter has said as a general rule, nobody's going to mess with you if you simply behave yourself. Years before this letter, I'm reminded the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter, the very author behind this letter to us, uh, he brandished a sword, you will remember, And he attempted to kill a man that was coming to arrest Jesus. Do you remember the story? And Jesus, not only that night, saved Peter's life, but he gave Peter some very important instruction. He said, and I'm sure Peter never forgot these words, Peter, those that live by the sword will die by the sword. Peter, your violence against them will only result in their violence against you. And of course, Jesus was calling Peter not to take another man's life, but to give up his own life. Well, brothers and sisters, if we're not pursuing righteousness in the way Jesus and Peter described by blessing our enemies, Peter's just talked about that earlier in this chapter, then we have no right to claim that the animosity and the mistreatment we are receiving from the world is because we're a Christian and because of our Christian faith. In other words, if you're despised, Get this, if you're despised for not behaving like Christ, then you are not suffering for Christ. You're suffering for being yourself. You're suffering for your own misdemeanor. Also notice here, Peter would insinuate, we're not being called to seek persecution. His question implies that we are not to seek persecution, but we are to do what we can to seek peace. Just Look back to verse 11. We are to seek peace and pursue it. That is a good thing. I've heard Christians say things, some, say things like, I am praying that God would send us persecution here in America. And, uh, you know, if, if you feel that way, well then... Go ahead and why don't you begin asking God would send you persecution and then you can tell us all about that, all about what you've learned. But for the rest of us, please know that the Bible nowhere commands us to pray for persecution or to pursue crucifixion. Now we are called to follow our, uh, take up our cross and follow Christ, that is true. But this does not mean looking for ways to get crucified. We don't go out of our way. We're not asking for trouble from the world. We are not to hold a martyr's complex. Prove zealous for what is good, Peter says, and leave it to others as to how they will respond. As a general rule, zealously pursuing what is right will save you some pain. But secondly, even if it should come to suffering, Peter will tell us suffering for what is right will bring God's blessing. That means this is a win-win. Verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Because there are times when a society is simply unjust or the people around you will simply disregard the fact that you are uh, not doing what's wrong. They will even go against the moral code that God has embedded on their hearts. They will treat you unjustly. And in such cases, Christians will find themselves on the end of persecution, receiving unjust treatment. Well, this should encourage us to remember then. That just because someone's mad at us, just because someone uh, is going out of their way to be unkind to us, to treat us unjustly, that doesn't necessarily mean we're doing something wrong. That doesn't necessarily mean uh, that we're being punished for being wrong. Jesus assured us in John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's very comforting, Jesus. Thanks for that, right? Well, Jesus also told us that suffering for his sake would result in blessing. He said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I'm sure Peter has this very text in mind, this very statement of Jesus in mind as he's writing to us what he is. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad. Don't back down when you receive opposition for your faith. He says rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Remember when Emperor Valens threatened the Christian Eusebius with confiscation of all his goods, uh, with torture, with banishment, or even death if he did not renounce Christ. Eusebius replied, he needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death when this is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. You see, Valence could do nothing to ultimately back down this Christian. Eusebius saw himself in a win-win situation. And if we believe the same, what can stop us from pursuing what is right? We've nothing to lose, we've everything to gain. How should Christians respond to a hostile culture? Well, first, Paul, uh, Peter is saying, continue doing what is right. Whatever the cost, whatever the opposition... But this pursuit of righteousness is not some legalistic scheme of self-improvement. No, the second response Peter commands here is to focus on Christ. That's the point. Focus on Christ. Verse 14 continues, And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. You know, fear has a way of stealing or captivating our focus. Have you ever been trying to listen to a sermon, like maybe right now? Or perhaps... At home, you're, you want to read your Bible, and you're, or you're trying to spend time in prayer, and your mind just keeps running back to certain things you f- fear. Fear just has a way of stealing and holding our attention. And these people that Peter's writing to were facing real fears from a, a, a very hostile anti-Christian community. And, and this threatened, no doubt, to steal their focus from Christ. So it's no wonder that Peter begins... By dealing with our fear of man before commanding our reverence to Christ. If you're going to focus on Christ, you must dismiss, first of all, the fear of man. Peter says, do not fear their intimidation. Literally, in the Greek, it says, do not fear their fear. Which could mean, do not fear what they are afraid of, like the NIV says. Or, uh, it could mean, don't fear them, period. Don't fear their attempts to make you afraid. And that is the way the New American Standard and ESV translate the text. Whatever the case, the idea is, don't fear man. (laughs) We ought to fear God. And Peter adds for emphasis, and do not be troubled. This is basically a restatement for emphasis. And I don't know about you, but when I'm told, don't be afraid, don't worry, don't fear, that's usually not very helpful, (laughs) okay? Uh, When I'm afraid, when you're afraid, somebody simply telling you, don't fear, isn't like, Light bulb goes on. Oh, oh, great. Great idea, right? So, Peter, what are we going to do about this? Well, let's just remember this in context. Peter's just reminded us of what Jesus has said. That if we suffer for Christ's sake, we are blessed. You see, it really is a matter of perspective. If you don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus, I understand this may mean nothing to you. In fact, you will think we are all crazy here. But if you do genuinely know Christ, the Bible's reassurance to you is that the these reasons that might cause you to be afraid, the threats of those opposing you, their intimidation, their acts of vandalism, whatever their hostility that might tempt you to fear, these very things are a blessing to you. It is a a blessing. Your persecution for righteousness, for the sake of Christ, is a sign of God's blessing. Now, we can choose to believe that or not, But if we believe that, we can pillow our head and take comfort in this. Those who belong to Christ, who suffer for his sake, God is saying, you're under my insurance policy. I have you covered. In fact, I'm going to reward you for this. Just remember, our present physical life is only for a moment. That's going to be past. But suffering for Christ will result in eternal blessing. So don't fear those who can only destroy the body. If you're going to focus... Uh, on Christ, you must dismiss the fear of man. You can't focus on Jesus while you're obsessed with what others are thinking or threat- how they're threatening you. You must dismiss the fear of man and then ultimately you must devote your heart to Christ. He says, do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And Peter is loosely quoting here from Isaiah chapter 8. He's already cited Isaiah 8. In, in the, back in chapter 2 of his letter, where he mentioned that Christ is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to all who do not believe on him. So this passage in Isaiah 8 was clearly on Peter's mind. The, the context here, I'll just mention briefly, behind Isaiah 7 and 8, uh, is that the northern kingdom of Israel was allied, came into an alliance with the nation of Assyria. And they intended to both come together against the southern nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. They wanted to lay siege to Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us in in the opening of Isaiah 7 that the king of Ahaz, of Ahaz, king of Judah, and all his people, their hearts shook as the trees shake with the wind. They were terrified of these men that were going to come against them. But the Lord sends word to his people that they are not to fear their enemies, but they are to put, his, uh, put their trust in his deliverance. And so when we get to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, this is what Isaiah says. He tells his people, you are not to fear, but it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Peter's quoting from these verses, not verbatim, But the changes that Peter also introduces, the variations between his citation and the original Hebrew, are very telling. They're significant. Notice what Peter's doing here. Where Isaiah commands us to fear Yahweh, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Peter takes the statement and commands us to set apart Christ. He says set apart Christ as Lord. He puts Christ in the place of Yahweh. In fact, Peter identifies Christ as Lord. He uses this Greek. And so Peter says, rather than fearing your persecutors, rather than succumbing to their demands by withdrawing your allegiance to Christ, he says, sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. The word sanctify normally means to make holy, but as we know, Christ is already holy. And so Peter's usage of the word here is... is is like that found in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 remember where Jesus said our Father who is in heaven hallowed same word in the Greek hallowed be your name now God is already holy we don't make God holy we don't pray that God will be holy what are we doing what's the point here well some versions also translate this as show reverence or to honor Christ as Lord in your heart that's the idea we are Setting Christ apart in our heart in a way that we set no one else apart. He is number one. He is God. We set him apart as Lord. Simple. Polycarp was an early church father or one of the early leaders in the early church. He actually sat for some time under the the teaching of the apostle John himself. And here's what witnesses said of his trials. He was brought to the proconsul on behalf of his testimony for Jesus, and the proconsul was urging him to curse Christ. Polycarp replied, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I curse my king and my savior? And Polycarp played the man, and he gave his life for Jesus. That's the allegiance The reverence that Peter's after. It's this reverence for Jesus that keeps us focused on Jesus. Setting apart Christ as Lord. And so long as Jesus sits on the throne of your heart, enthroned as Lord, you will be able to say with Polycarp, He's my Lord. He's my King, my Savior. How then can I deny Him? How then can I pledge allegiance to anything else but my Lord? So long as you revere Christ as Lord, your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions will be governed by the word of Christ and not by the demands of this hostile culture. So how are Christians to respond to a hostile culture? We'll continue doing what's right, regardless of what anybody says or how they threaten you. And focus on Christ. But a third response Peter commands is defend the faith. Defend the faith. Verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We have a responsibility not just to focus on Christ and to pursue righteousness, but also we have a responsibility to defend what we believe. This is part of our Christian testimony, our responsibility to the watching world. And the word defense here is the Greek word apologia, from where we get our word apologetics. That is this uh, defense of the Christian faith. Apologia was always, uh, nearly always, uh, describing a rational sort of defense. In Peter's day, in fact, it was often used to describe a legal defense in a legal context where the accused was called upon to make his defense to the charges brought against him. And given that some Christians were dragged before judges, literally, we might understand Peter to literally be saying, be ready to be brought before the judge and to give your apologia. Give your defense concerning what you believe. Whatever the case, here are three qualifications that all Christians must embrace in order to defend the faith we believe. First, be ready, he says. Peter says, always being ready to make a defense. During the American Revolution, there went up a call for militia. And this call was to any man able-bodied from age 16 to 60. Because of the British invasion, these men were being called upon to defend the homeland. And among the local militia, there were some called Minutemen. And they were so called because they were said to be ready at a minute's notice to lay down their lives to defend their country. Well, Peter is saying, All Christians, be ready. Be ready to give a defense for the faith that is in you, the hope that is in you. Before we discuss this defense itself and what it constitutes, just realize the Bible is then saying, this must be a priority in your life. Do you get that? That's certainly how I understand this. the, The idea of being ready always to give an answer to everyone, this alone proves that, Following Jesus, this kind of a defense, this kind of responsibility is demanding more of me than just a Sunday-only Christian lifestyle. Ready always. Ready to anyone. This means, this is the idea that to be ready always, to make a defense to everyone, that's the way of saying, one way of saying, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what's going on in your life, regardless of the fact you might say, but this is just a difficult season for me, Peter's saying, You're on the front lines now. You're not in the reserves. You're on the front. Welcome to the front. Be ready, he's saying. Be ready. Be prepared for action. Be ready, but defending the faith also requires us to be reasonable. When Peter says, always be ready to make a defense, the word defense I've said, or apologia, is a rational sort of defense. And he says, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Actually, the word account is most often translated reason. Most, I think most English translations actually render it that way. And that's the idea. So this defense does have to do with reason or being reasonable. But remember, most of these Christians Peter's writing to in first century Asia, they were simple people. They didn't have the opportunity for a sophisticated education in formal apologetics. So I don't believe Peter's saying at all that that, that all of us must aspire somehow to give a flowery, sophisticated defense of all the Christian doctrines. I mean, that would be great, but everyone in the church, let's face it, is not going to be able to debate with just anyone on the street about just anything. So there's two things that should be said here, and they have to do with avoiding two extremes. The first is this idea that one needs... A education in formal apologetics in order to be an effective evangelist. That's just simply not true. The Bible shows us the opposite. Uh, the bare essential in this text is always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. And every born-again Christian, however simple, has a powerful apologetic that is the apologetic of the living hope that is in you. It's the blessed hope that Peter has described in chapter 1 of this letter. I'm reminded of the Samaritan woman at the well. She didn't have an education in formal apologetics. She didn't even have a training in a new believer's course. But she had hope because she knew Jesus Christ. And so she comes to know Jesus. She believes. And with this hope, she goes back into the city of Saqqar where she was from. And she leads the entire village to follow Jesus. She was quite an evangelist without this sort of formal training. She had a living hope. She was ready to make a defense to everyone for the hope that was in her. So what about you, brother or sister? Do you have this hope in you? If you do, you have everything you need to bring others to a saving knowledge of Christ. To know the same Jesus you do. But this brings us to the second extreme that we are to avoid. Because many will say, well, there you have it. We don't need any formal training. We don't need to know all the Bible doctrines. We don't need to understand apologetics. We just need our own personal testimony to be an effective evangelist. Well, here's the other extreme we should avoid. And this is the idea that one doesn't need to study how to defend the faith or to give any reasons for Christianity beyond one's personal testimony. That's all I'm going to tell you. Just the way I feel. Just my experience. But if you read the Bible, you'll find that God himself And his prophets and his apostles are always constantly answering questions. Of course, God doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know. But he's a very rational God. He works with our, he accommodates to our very limited human understanding. God wants us to seek to understand him. Because every honest question deserves an honest answer. And you know, there are plenty of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims and so forth that will spend much time, many hours studying how to answer questions and objections to their faith. What about us? What are we willing to do? Are we willing to do for the truth what the cults are willing to do for a lie? I should add also that while Peter, it's true, his original audience may not have been in any position to pursue formal apologetics training That's not necessarily a free pass to us in the 21st century. Do you realize we live in a different world in many regards? We have more time, just generally speaking as a society, more free time than previous societies could have dreamed of. We have more information, more opportunities to learn than previous generations could have imagined. So then, let's get busy studying the Bible. We owe it to the world to answer their questions, beginning with our hope that is in us, And that means we've got a lot of work to do. Be ready, be reasonable, and defending the faith requires us to be respectful. Peter says in verse 15, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. How fitting Peter adds this qualification. Because I've seen, and I've been guilty of at times, Christians using apologetics to absolutely clobber their opponents, to make others look foolish. And it does feel good to use truth to just dismantle, just destroy the lies that are all around this world. But as much as we hate the lies, and we must hate the lies, we must love the people that hold them. We must love the people and have compassion upon those who even propagate those lies. And so we must deliver the truth with love and humility, or as Peter qualifies here, with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness means we're to be meek as we engage nonbelievers. Because we are genuinely called to love them, to feel genuine compassion for them. And he adds reverence here. And the reverence here is likely reverence before God. Reverence before God so that Peter's saying, a proper reverence for God will ensure a proper respect. For the dignity of those he's made in his image. Including the souls who even deny him. How are Christians to respond to a hostile culture? Peter says continue doing what's right. Focus on Christ. Defend the faith. And finally Peter adds keep a pure conscience. Keep a pure conscience. Verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. What is the conscience? And why is it so important to keep a pure conscience? The Bible teaches God has written his law on the heart of every person to the effect that even if we should remain ignorant of what God has written in Scripture, our hearts, even still our inner heart compels us to obey our creator's designs while our heart also condemns us for not doing so. This inner faculty that compels good and condemns evil, this is the conscience. We all have one. Um, Even though we don't always act like it, we have a conscience. And so why is it necessary to keep a pure conscience? Well, three reasons briefly to keep a pure conscience. Briefly, first, keeping a pure conscience pleases our Lord. This falls from the fact that God... Created our conscience. He's the designer behind it. And the conscience represents God's holy law. The conscience is not infallible. Of course, it can be distorted. As long as we don't listen to it, it can become twisted. But however twisted a sinner becomes, he still exists as an image bearer of God. And God's law is still engraved. To some extent, it's still engraved upon that heart. And we'll condemn that sinner on the day of judgment. Of course, the fact that the Bible is here calling us to keep a good conscience, that's proof enough. This is what God desires. This is what pleases our Lord. So keep a pure conscience because it pleases the Lord. But secondly, the second reason to keep a pure conscience is that keeping a pure conscience protects our peace. The Greek playwright Sophocles once said, there is no witness so terrible and no accuser so powerful as conscience which dwells within us. Anybody come from a home where if mama ain't happy... Nobody's happy. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Maybe that was or is your situation. But with regards to your inner self, if your conscience isn't at rest, your whole being, your whole soul is not at rest. It is restless. That's what Sophocles was saying. And the Bible agrees. You can see many examples of this in the Bible. King David is one great example. While he was living with a guilty conscience, he describes... His life as prolonged, his experience of prolonged, abject misery. Well, that was ancient times. Pastor, uh, things are a little different now. I mean, many Americans have a different outlook on guilt. Yeah, they do. In the strange persistence of guilt... Historian Wilfred McClay recognizes two competing cultural trends. First, there is the psychologizing of guilt and shame. That is, our culture has largely replaced any idea of moral guilt... ...with the idea of psychological disorder. And this, uh, in, in this idea of this displacement, if you were... ...any sense of moral failure, failure against God, uh, debt to his law... Is most often reinterpreted then in therapeutic terms. The second trend McClay reports is that despite all our therapeutic answers to guilt and shame modern people do not appear more at peace or more reconciled with themselves. What do you know? Now some people do have real mental health issues I don't deny that but do the research. We've got more psychotropic medication than ever before. We've got more healthcare, mental health care professionals than ever before. And this mental health crisis in our nation just keeps snowballing. It's worse than ever before. If the Bible's correct, and I think it is, then the true solution for many of these truly guilty people in our psychologized society is to stop explaining away their guilt and to start confessing their guilt to God. God can actually forgive our guilt. God can actually do something about it. He can actually heal our misery. And he's looking to transform us and not just get our business. Christian, you can be born again. You can be able to explain the gospel backward and forward. You might be able to give all the right answers and the apologetic to the person on the street. But if you yourself are not living with a clean conscience, you are depriving yourself of peace and joy. You are not really showing forth the hope that is in you. You are not only stunting your growth, you are quenching the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and ministry. With an unclean conscience, you are depriving yourself of a solid footing to stand upon when persecution comes. Keeping a pure conscience pleases the Lord. It protects our peace. But what Peter really draws our attention to in verse 16 is that keeping a pure conscience prosecutes our persecutors. He says, keep a, pure, a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. We can't control how others will react to our faith. But we can do something about our own conscience. And Peter says, when you do, when you are living at peace with God, regardless of how others view you, however hostile they are, and the fact you cannot keep peace with them because they will not allow it. Peter says, as long as your conscience is right with God. He says, you will put to shame those who persecute you. Now this is true. This is true that this shame, this shame will come. It, it may come before their death the death of those who persecute you. Hopefully, by God's grace, it does. And God will use the shame that they are experiencing as they see you returning their evil for good and the rest and the personal peace you have in your life despite all the hostility they're throwing on you. What a wonder, what a blessing it would be if the Lord used that to draw them to Christ. God has done that many times. But also, it, it may be true and has been the case, That this comes after death. Because those who do not come to Christ. Who persecute God's people unjustly. They will be put to shame on the day of judgment. That's sobering. We'll close with uh, verse 17 here. Peter concludes. For it is better if God should will it so. That you suffer for doing what is right. Rather than for doing what is wrong. Here in verse 17. Peter now ends right where he started. In verse 13. He's saying, if persecution comes, if people are going to cause you to suffer for what is right, let them do it. Go ahead. If people are going to persecute you for doing what's right, for the sake of righteousness, go ahead, let them do it. Let persecution come. You continue following Christ. You continue doing what's right. How should Christians respond to a hostile culture? Continue doing what's right. Focus on Christ. Defend the faith. And keep a pure conscience. We can't do this in our own power. We need the grace of God. That's why all this letter is about standing firm, not in our own strength, but standing firm in the true grace of God. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Lord to empower us to do these things, to stand firm. Let's pray and ask Him for that help.